Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. This is Taylor wearing my producer's hat for just a moment. I wanted to let you know about a slight issue we had on today's recording. Uh, Ryan is recording remotely and I think had some sort of grounding issue or he just made the conscious decision to randomly insert little tiny electrical noises in the background. Uh, I've done my best to get rid of them. I think Joe has done the same on the Patreon episode, but just wanted to let you know that we are aware that there is a a slight issue there. Uh, I don't think it affects recording all that much, but was probably enough that you would inevitably want to send a message saying, hey, do you guys know that something is wrong? So we do. We're working on it. But in the meantime, uh, please bear with us as you enjoy this episode, which I really, really enjoyed. I didn't want to have to re-record it, so hopefully you're okay with some of the uh, little bits of distortion along the way. But I love this one. Hope you will too. Talk soon. Total Soccer Show in an episode where we hop back to that magical soccer-free time in 2020 when we struggled for content and reviewed Netflix shows. Yeah, you remember that when everyone had COVID listener, you know, like they all do now? Anyway, this time we're looking at the recently released four-part Beckham documentary, which chronicles the life and times of that free kick hitting, purple suit wearing, candle wick cutting, <laughs> maverick, David Robert Joseph Beckham OBE. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today to watch some Netflix, we have Mr. Taylor Rocco. Hello, Tay-Tay. Hello, my friend. Hello, Graham Ruthven. Hello, Ryan. Am I the only one wearing the purple suit? I thought we were all going to do it. Come on, guys. <laughs> letting the team down here. I'm Mine's actually the- wearing the Eddie Murphy purple raw suit. That's what I thought we were doing today. I don't realize we we're going yeah, to wrong Beckham purple, purple suit. suit. Yeah, it's very uncomfortable and sticky. <laughs> and Joe Larry wearing his uh, finest Fiorentina colors also didn't get the memo. Hello, Joe. I just have the pants on. It's just the bottoms for me, fellas. That's all it is. <laughs> okay. Uh, so basically, guys, we're doing this. <laughs> I, just, I just heard that. Uh, we're doing this podcast because uh, um, this show has become something of a cultural phenomenon, has it not, Graham? Like, I think yeah. a lot of soccer fans have been watching this thing, and we wanted to sort of give our thoughts on it. And first out, we should probably outlay that this is not hard-hitting journalism of any kind. It is... A product, a product that's been produced by Beckham and his parties, effectively. Yeah, absolutely. So it's produced by a company called Studio 99, a company that I hadn't heard of before this documentary. But when you Google Studio 99, you find their website. It's David Beckham's production company. So you're right. This isn't this isn't journalism, per se. And I knew that before it was released last week on, on Netflix. And that probably colored my skepticism ahead of this documentary. But watching it... The four parts of it, I I plowed through it very, very quickly. I found it very, very enjoyable. I think it has transcended soccer and soccer fans. Like I was at a gig on Friday night last week and there are people there who aren't so- uh, football fans and they're telling me they've watched all four episodes and there was had a big conversation with friends about it. So yes, it has hit upon um, something cultural and I think that 
that speaks to what Beckham, David Beckham, is as a, as, as a soccer player. He was always more than a soccer player. He was a, a bit of a cultural phenomenon. He was indeed. And I suppose a lot of that, Graham, is, is us uh, reminiscing about the 90s, which means Joseph Lowry might have a different approach to this documentary. Was there anything particularly jarring, Joe, when you went into this? Um, the suit was huge. So uh, to back up one step, Ryan's totally right. Like I approached this from a, a vastly different perspective than the three of you. We had a long pre-show chat about, you know, kind of all this and about the memories and reminiscing. And I'm just kind of sitting over here, like seeing a lot of this, not all of it, but a lot of this and even a lot of the stories for the first time. And I, I still haven't quite finished the documentary yet. I think I'm two and a half episodes in out of the four, maybe a little bit more than that. But I was honestly surprised at how enjoyable I found this to be as someone who doesn't really, frankly, like, I don't really care about David Beckham. Like I never really have even his, his arrival and impact on soccer in the U S kind of predated me certainly doing this job. I was aware of a lot of those things, but it didn't impact me in the same way that it impacted you all. So that was surprising to me how enjoyable I found this. And, and still for me, then getting to experience the absurdities like the purple suit, which is just horrific and I think means that we should forget the 90s ever happened and a number of these other things like I really I was I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed all of this it's it's not just the purple suit it's the the suit that he's wearing off the plane at the, the 98 world cup which is just so ill-fitting why is every suit all those in the suits, 90s isn't Rio Ferdinand who said basically like yeah. you know everybody's got these suits like he could have fit three Rio Ferdinands in that same suit yeah those were atrocious but still not <laughs> as bad as the purple and and that's the thing about Beckham is everything looks good on Beckham. When he goes to Real Madrid, there's the there, he's wearing like a kind of a checkered dad shirt with uh, like smart trousers. Everyone else, Zidane, Figo, Raul, all look terrible in it. Somehow Beckham looks great in it. And this is I think Beckham is to blame for people like mohawking their hair and doing all those things to their hair in the early 2000s because it looked great on David Beckham, not so much on your average 12-year-old kid. They did miss the chance uh, when they had original Ronaldo talking about like, yeah, he had amazing hair. I have the curly hair. I couldn't really pull that off. I, I kind of wish they had given us a cut of the triangle shave, but they did not. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I enjoyed, I really enjoyed some of those talking heads. A thing I am mildly confused by though, to go back to the original like introduction, I read two different articles that specifically said that the Beckhams were not producers. And that is not to question what you have said, Graham. It's more so that I, I do wonder how much like research was done in researching those companies, because that did frame my understanding of like, oh, this is an independent crew who decided to talk to the Beckhams. I read an interview with Fisher Stevens, the director, who said he had very little interest in David Beckham before talking to him via Skype and found him to be very compelling and down to earth. So that they were then producers does sort of reframe some things for me yeah. a little bit. I appreciate that context. So I think there's maybe a difference between producers and production companies. So I, mm -hmm. I, yeah, Fisher Stevens is the is the producer on this, which is that, which that's weird, right? It's not Greg, just me. Can you who just outlay who Fisher Stevens is. Hugo from Succession. Yes. <laughs> so yes, that is weird. He is also uh, like d did brown skin for the Johnny Five movies, which sure, we're circuit. not going to talk about. Yes, indeed. But he is also an Oscar winning. Uh, producer of documentary films starting with the cove he did one with leonardo dicaprio i think he was a producer on tiger king for which he won an emmy so he has i think a lot of documentary cred uh but yeah. it was still weird to hear him and that they seemed to lift huge parts of the succession score for this documentary it was very succession vibes oh, yeah. at times in this one 
Particularly the bit where Capello in whenever that is, episode three, I think, when they're yes. introducing yes. him to his interview and it's like a lakeside setting and they've got the music. I was half expecting Lucas Matson to appear at any moment. hundred percent. One hundred percent, yes. <laughs> Taylor, I, I just had to look up the character name from Short Circuit because I couldn't quite believe it was that uh, what you just said, but it's uh-huh. not. Um, basically, he was playing a problematic character in that movie, shall we say. Yes, doing a problematic Indian accent. Yes, he was. Uh, which, surprisingly, he does not utilize in this documentary. I'm not sure why. No, very odd. <laughs> he, he does like to swear and sort of uh, like be, I, I'm so cool, I swear with you. Uh, that was the vibe I got from him in this one. But it's very good. Uh, why don't we start off with episode one? Mm-hmm. Um, this one hit home a little bit for me because it opens with the goal from the halfway line at Selhurst Park. <laughs> uh, where I was there that day, uh, Wimbledon lost 3-0, so I'm, I've seen that goal many, many, many times. Yeah. But it was You had kind a better of, view of it than Beckham's dad, it seems, who missed yeah. it. I'm sorry, I have to apologise to Ted Beckham, I stood up in front of him for that one. <laughs> it was you, <laughs> you were the one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This um, guy in front of me, he wouldn't stop talking about Oasis, and then he stood up at the worst possible moment. <laughs> what, what stood out for me there is that, this is something we've discussed off mic as well. Beckham was, what, 20, 21 at this point when he broke through? He wasn't like a Jude Bellingham teenager. He wasn't yeah. like a Wayne Rooney teenager. He was relatively old, which sounds terrible to say about someone who's 20 years old. But, but when he broke through to his Manchester United side, he wasn't, Taylor, exactly a kid. No, I, but I think had been, as they point out, like steeped in the tradi- traditions of the club, had been allowed in the locker room when he was very young and had been obviously very well-schooled by Sir Alex Ferguson, such that he is able to pull off something that Jordi Cruyff apparently was not. He mentions that one in the opening scene. But I thought that did a really good job of sort of setting the stage for him making that sort of debut, such as it was. But then also, I think it sets the stage for people who are less familiar with David Beckham or know his name, but don't know what he did really, or somewhat familiar with his soccer career. To see that goal, like it's undeniable, the skill involved Uh, and how much vision is required to be able to spot that and then make it happen. The other thing that stood out to me on like a littler note is just he doesn't crush the ball when he hits it. And, and, And for me to hit a shot from 50 yards out, I would have to put everything I have into it. And he just look makes it look so smooth that it's a perfect encapsulation of like how good he was at set pieces, how lethal he was at set pieces and on the ball, but then also how much of a difference maker he could be and how electrifying he was in his prime. Yeah, the rest of you guys already know this, but but for listeners, I basically just treated our Google Doc for this episode as like a, a live tweeting platform. So I'm going through and seeing like seeing this goal. I've never watched this goal before. I've heard you guys talk about it. I forgot um, some of the context around it. And so then I, I put down in the Google Doc, wait, did that opening goal happen against Wimbledon? Ryan, specifically towards you, I'm torn between LOL and sorry. I, I That is a brutal moment. The fact that Jordi Cruyff tried one, it, that was at the same game. It seemed like it was the mm-hmm. same game yeah, in the way that they presented it. And missed, and you think, all right, well, dodged a bullet there for embarrassment. And then Beckham puts it in the back of the net. Oh, it's so sad. So for further context, Joe, that was the goalkeeper, Neil Sullivan, who subsequently played for Scotland in France 98 at the World Cup. Um, The following week, Wimbledon played Newcastle, and he got lobbed again. Oh, so my. not only did he get lobbed then, and he, there was something about his technique that I so think we, uh, people were spotting. We found Tyler Miller's inspiration. That's good to hear. Wayne Rooney, Tyler Miller, all, all ties back to David Beckham. One other thing, yeah. Taylor, you mentioned the technique, and that's like that is the thing that I think uh-huh. even non-soccer fans know about Beckham. Just because, well, outside of his his wife and family, like that's because we got the movie that's called Bend It Like Beckham. Like that's the thing that people know mm-hmm. and think about when they think of David Beckham outside of the celebrity status. But one of my favorite things about this documentary is all the old clips. I think they showed 
David Beckham's dad saying that he has like 1,300 of David Beckham, what I assume like are his youth games, yeah. on what I would assume is like a cassette or a VHS kind of thing. S- several like, cassettes, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it would take multiple, <laughs> sure. Um, like that, that blows my mind, but to see those clips, you can see the technique from early on. They talk yeah. about that. Like somebody points out, yeah, it's the same, it's the same technique, the direction that his body goes when he hits the ball. It's unique. Like nobody else yeah. kicks the ball quite like that, and it translates so well to either those dead ball situations, which again is the soccer thing that he's most known for, or like those ridiculous passes in some of those open play moments too. It, it was all the Guinness that he was getting fed as a child. That's what led to the, <laughs> Dude, the unique technique. Was that I a thing? That I missed that. Yeah, yeah. yeah as his they dad, were, his dad says him. to bulk him up. They were feeding him Guinness. It's oh <laughs> like a ten year old. <laughs> so two things for me while we're on that topic or that segues nicely into one uh, i i really enjoyed this i want to own that up front like in a non-ironic whatever way i was expecting to sort of roll my eyes at times and i did but i felt like this was a really compelling documentary because i think it it sort of it does it indirectly in my opinion but i think that's a deliberate touch it really shows you who david beckham is and i think that also explains why he is so popular obviously uh, his attractiveness and his marketability is a big part of that. But I think how often he is very straightforward in his answers, that comes across. And I think his work ethic uh, is another thing that comes across. And I think it's why so many different teammates end up really enjoying him is because he works so hard. But in that scene, Joe, that you mentioned where his dad has every single game he played, it's pretty clear that his dad was the, you know, like, do it again, do it again. And David Beckham was like, but my feet are bleeding. Do it again. I don't care. And I love that they asked him, like, didn't you ever just want to, like, clock him? Didn't you ever want to hit him? And Beckham says no right away. And me watching that, I was like, okay, there's the kind of PR spin. He's just saying no. And then he says, because he would have given me one back. And that is a real answer that I think is genuinely true, that if if he had hit his dad, I get the impression he was getting hit back. And there's another one. When they ask him earlier, like when he was younger, does Sir Alex Ferguson scares you? And he smiles and then says, sometimes, and laughs. And it's like, it's another genuine answer. And I think there is a genuine person there that also then sets the stage for the opening scene of him being a beekeeper now. And, And I think that at first, I thought that was such a strange way of introducing David Beckham. But I think in hindsight, it is a perfect way to explain who he is because he is clearly an OCD guy who likes things a certain way yeah. who when he gets into something goes into it fully if he likes cars he's buying the best cars if he likes watches he's buying the best watches if he wants to buy a team he's putting them here he's bringing met like he does things very deliberately we see him in one episode go through his closets and and at first I thought it was you know all staged for a documentary but you can see at points how happy having his shirts organized makes him and it's just very clear like that's who he is from the jump but then also we see when they're going when he's like extracting the honey from the beehives some like dead bees come out and it turns black and then the next cut is this pristine jar of honey and they're discussing what the branding will be and what they'll call it and that right there felt to me like you're gonna get some of the truth but you are still getting a finished, polished product at the end. But in between, you can see some of the reality of him, of Victoria Beckham, and I think of the other people involved in his life. 
and and this is where Beckham is is an interesting contradiction because you have that that polished facade that you get as as a public facing facing figure, but there underneath that, and you're talking about his work ethic there, Taylor. Underneath that are definitely like working class sensibilities, yes. which probably come from his dad. I think Roy Keane is a really interesting indicator about Beckham yeah. because we all know what Roy Keane is like, right? And Beckham, despite the the flash cars and the haircuts and the celebrity life and the pop star wife and all that gets a pass from Roy Keane because that work rate was always there. And they ask him a couple of times in this documentary, you know, did, did that ever bother you? Right off the bat, he's like, no, not at all. Because he knew that the work rate was always going to be there. Beckham is a, work, a hard worker on and off the pitch, no matter kind of what he does. And I think Keane has, that hasn't always been seen. There's been managers throughout Beckham's career who haven't been able to separate those two things. But Keane is able to separate it and is able to see it. And I think that's a, an interesting indicator of the, of the kind of person Beckham is. Unless yeah. you buy a pen. <laughs> yeah, he, couldn't, he, he wasn't going to say that at all. <laughs> Who spends more than a dollar on a pen, apparently, says Rick Keane. Um, Taylor, I love your reading of that bee, the, the opening beekeeping scene. That is superb. And I think what's... I, I read a Guardian review of this series, and they noted that someone who is this OCD obviously has some control over how his image is portrayed in the uh-huh. documentary itself. So that's why we have to take it as with a pinch of salt. But I yeah. do think there are, there are moments when he showed more humility than I would expect. Like when he said, I'm not known for being intelligent. It gives like a wry smile. He's kind of leaning into the fact that we don't see him as a, yeah. a brainy person, which I think's quite good. Great. And Taylor and, I, Taylor and I were talking about this before we started recording. I, while obviously he has final say and final veto on, on, on what gets into this documentary, I think he's self-aware enough to know that he has to tell something close to a full story. And there are bits in this documentary that I was, a li- I was, I was kind of raising my eye- eyebrows, Ancelotti style, mm-hmm. at some of the things that were in there. For example, Carlos Cuerra's talking about the Pepsi advert mm-hmm. thing, which I, I hadn't heard that story. Carlos Cuerra's basically accuses Beckham of bulking up for this Pepsi advert, the famous one, the, the, glad- the, the Gladiator Pepsi advert. I hadn't heard that story. And Beckham clearly disagrees with that. Beckham clearly thinks that is rubbish, that that allegation is false, but it's still in the documentary to kind of tell the story. So I did appreciate little moments like that. Yeah, there's, there's, I think having existing footage is so critical to Joe's point because you get to see everything documented. You also get to see him watching that stuff and sort of reliving it and, and the Figo stuff where he's watching and he's been like, oh, now we're starting to play. Oh, now we're playing. That's a really cool moment. But I think it also is, re- is used very wisely when they're asking him, like, did you, did you feel like you changed? And him at, I think, 47 saying like, no, I was the same. And then it just cuts to him like in these ridiculous poses and in just totally different dynamics to where he was before and i think it sort of shows like yeah no there was some changing happening and i think the truth as always is somewhere in the middle well they have the jump cut to ferguson where beckham goes it didn't change me as a person and then immediately fergie comes in and goes (laughs) it changed them as a person (laughs) man fergie fergie has some he definitely comes across a villain for large chunks of this but like the moment when they ask him like does the pop star thing bother you or like does like the pop celebrity bother you and he's like Yes. Yes, it does. Like he tried really hard to say no and couldn't bring himself to. Uh, So I think some of that was really, really interesting. Ryan, last thing on that opening scene, though. I love that as being a a beekeeper, he still has the the perfect like white beekeeper suit that is monogrammed. You have to have that because that seems to be his style. But then also they're focused on that one hive. And I was thinking like, oh, okay, so this is his new hobby. He has like the one beehive. And then there's a wide shot of him working the hive and you see what has to be 50 more behind him? And I'm sure there are staff working on those, but it was a moment of like, man, this guy does not do anything low key. If he's doing a thing, he is doing it all the way. 
He is indeed. Uh, some other highlights from this episode. I like the way these, this series, by, by the way, sets up its villains. Uh, Glenn Hoddle later in the, in the series becomes a villain. But in this first episode, he talks about how much he loves Hoddle as a player as well. And then mm-hmm. we sort of see the, the, the turn, the heel turn of uh, Glenn Hoddle later on as he becomes, uh, as he works under him as England manager. Um, so there was the moment where it seems like he met Posh Spice as well. <laughs> and Graham might appreciate this. It seems that the first time she came to Old Trafford, she was doing the halftime raffle. So she was reading out a number <laughs> of a fan who'd won a prize, which which feels so incredibly 90s. I enjoyed yeah, that very times much. Times have changed. They, <laughs> they have don't do that at Old Trafford anymore. Not, they're not booking the Spice Girls for that one anymore, I think is safe to say. Um, they, they might be. That that feels like a thing that they could the Glazers would be able to afford. <laughs> and so they would go for that one, yeah. Indeed. Yeah, help fix the roof. That's the, the campaign, the, <laughs> uh, the, the fundraising for fixing the Old Trafford roof. This this documentary has so many moments of unintentional comedy as well. And Gary Neville describing the moment when Beckham like first saw uh, Victoria and said, I'm going to marry her, was when they watched... First of all, they were all just watching Spice World, the movie, as a group. But the way Gary, Gary Neville's like, and there it was. It came on. And we were all watching. And it's just like, this isn't... This isn't, I don't know, Citizen Kane or The Godfather. It's like, you're talking about Spice World, the movie? Like, let's take it down a notch, Gary. That was the Uh, Citizen Kane of the era, Taylor. (laughs) My mistake, my mistake. It was indeed, it was indeed. Um, Obviously, we've all seen the clip of uh, Be Honest, Be Honest about the Rolls Royce and Mm. Victoria Beckham claiming she is a working class at the start. That's a very entertaining scene. But this episode, this first episode is called The Kick. So you think it's going to be about the halftime, halfway line goal against Wimbledon. But it transpires, it becomes about the kick on Diego Simeone at the Mm -hmm. front uh, 98 World Cup. And I really enjoyed this episode. But there was one line that actually made my blood boil. I Uh, know what it is. You know what it is, Graham. (laughs) It's Chulo Simeone, Simeone, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. He says, and I quote exactly uh, per the subtitles, football is about deceiving. Football is all about deceiving. What a lovable little scamp. <laughs> um, if the, if Are you there's kidding? ever a line that gives oh. some insight into Diego Simeone's coaching philosophy and evidently his playing philosophy, that is 1,000% the line. Yeah. Uh, it is pretty clear to me from watching this documentary that if you asked Diego Simeone for his five favorite moments from his career as a player or as a coach, getting Beckham sent off is in that top five. Yeah. And though he later says, like, no, it shouldn't have been a red card, just... The initial interview where he's like already smirking and Di- and Diego Simeone is not a man who I think of as being smirky or smiley or laughy. He is like straight giddy as a villain. He's got like big Ramsey Bolton vibes uh, in-, in his interviews <laughs> where he's just like, I know what I did. And it was funny. It was yeah. great to me. Like he I, I he comes across very likable for yeah, a man I who him. I think models <laughs> no, himself on not no. being likable. But but my goodness, was that a great there's some good heels in this one. And he is the heel of all heels. Yeah, I, 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 we have to take a break. I can't, I can't even talk about Diego Simeone anymore. I'm sorry. How great he is, you mean? Yeah. Also, not, not a red card. Can we all agree that is not a red card? What Beckham it's did? Definitely a red card. Would you really say it's a red card? A, a, a thousand percent. You can't kick out at somebody, Ryan. Yeah. What do you mean? Not a red card. <laughs> <laughs> uh, t- Team Joe on this one. Yeah. I think Simeone got him to do exactly what he wanted him to do. Yes, uh, Simeone sells it. I love that he was like, no, it definitely shouldn't have been a red card. It's like, tell yourself that, buddy. You look like you got shot. <laughs> All right. Let's let's uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dig into episode two, which leads with the uh, France 98 reaction and the perception of David Beckham across the UK and beyond. And also uh, Beckham gone down a treble in that episode. Back shortly. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer 
the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We are talking about the Beckham documentary. Can I just say, one of the talking heads, Taylor, is the receptionist at, mm-hmm. uh, at Manchester United. And it says in her caption, she started in 1968. She went through to 2023. She was receptionist for both Samat Busby and Eric Ten Hag. That's Weird. an incredible uh, tenure. It is. And clearly steeped in the traditions, clearly influenced by Sir Alex Ferguson, because I like how... Like she seems to operate under under the mafia omerta code, where she is just not she's not saying anything. They ask her about like receiving a bullet in the mail for Beckham. Like I'm not going to talk about that. Like she she's not given much away, other than that she is apparently the talismanic figure for Manchester United winning games. If she leaves a room yeah. to make a cup of coffee, which stood out to me, not tea but coffee, uh, that's when they <laughs> I can. I thought score. that as well. I yeah. thought that was weird. Like that yeah. game must have been that must have been like ten o'clock at night in yeah. the UK. She's making two cups of coffee in the space of a few minutes. <laughs> Absolute <laughs> madness. Oh, Johnny Tightlips, the receptionist, yep. was uh, very exactly. fun to see. I, I, I also love. <laughs> yeah, I also love that Albert Morgan, the kit man, tried to do that with the whole the, the whole boot incident, which maybe yeah, we'll yeah. talk about. Where he's like, I'm not going to talk about that, but it was stage managed, like the most yeah, like, yeah. The, like <laughs> the, the, the sharpest accusation you could possibly make. Yeah, are we going to so talk about it- that now, or should we talk about that later? Because I have questions. Go ahead, Taylor. If you'd like to talk about it now, you lay the floor down. What What were people's impressions uh, of that? Not even that incident, but the way the fallout from that incident, because it's 
It's Shocks Ferguson kicking Ole Gunnar's boot, which Ole Gunnar seems to find endlessly amusing. That was, he was another That was my uh, boot, standout. guys. It was mine. <laughs> yeah. Can you believe also, it? Was mine? it was mine? I'm so I was like, yeah. Oh, you scored a goal in a Champions League final. Like a winner in a Champions League final. <laughs> Don't be so chuffed about that being your boot. <laughs> uh, but so it hits Beckham. It glances off the brow. Beckham then says some things, or it seems like kind of like, I think like, like squares up. And, 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 and then from there... It seems like that is really the dividing point between Ferguson and Beckham. But a thing that I thought was interesting was the attempts by some people to say, it, you know, it, it barely hit him. Nothing really happened. And then you see the photos of him like with clearly like not if it's not stitches, it's like butterfly bandages, whatever. And it's clearly bloody. And then there's the kind of slight rumors that he was playing it up, that he was making it look worse than it was. It seems like Ferguson was maybe spreading that around a little bit. And my read was basically... Sir Alex Ferguson, who I love and I thought was great at times in this documentary, this was a moment for me where it just made me see him a little bit differently because I I saw it as him basically recognizing he made a mistake, apologizing in a very, yeah, it happened, it's done with, move on. But I don't think he really apologized to Beckham very directly. And then it seems like rather than own it, I think went the way of like, ah, he's making it a bigger deal. It's not a big deal in the way I would imagine like an old school like working class Scotsman might. So I'm I'm just wondering if anyone else has thoughts one way or the other. Was that maybe embellished? Was yeah. Beckham playing that up? Or do you feel like it was as bad and Fergie was downplaying it? Well, I look at it in, in two separate separate parts. So I, I feel like Ferguson's actions probably can't be excused in, in the dressing room. He kicks a boot at a, a player, clearly does damage to that player. He probably should have apologized more readily than he actually did. But the way it's stitched... Like across the yeah. across the wound, yeah. like a saltire, like a Scotland flag. You surely, I'm not a doctor, but you surely wouldn't stitch a wound in that manner, like yeah. like that, would you? It's like, like he, so. It he, feels he, like, it feels he, like he was man. He was stage managing it a bit. I think so. He might as well have had crutches at the same time, frankly, when he walked <laughs> or out. Or a, a neck like, brace. Yeah. But I think <laughs> the, full, was, the, full, the full Marty, yeah. One of the talking heads says it wasn't even worth a stitch, and then he, then it cuts to him with that um, yeah. the heavily bandaged eyebrow, which is quite interesting. But yeah, um, that, that comes a little later in the uh, series mm. here. This, this episode, episode two, opens with the cleaning scene, where he's uh, cleaning his oven and cutting the wicks off his candles and describing his OCD. Uh, and then we cut into the 98, the France 98 reaction. By the way, Ali McCoyst, your hero, Graham, in the studio in that game says, if that's a sending off, I'll eat my hat. That's a quote from Ali McCoyst. Are you calling Ali yeah. McCoyst a liar? Uh, have you seen some of the tackles in Scotland, though? <laughs> we, can't, we can't take a Scots word for, for anything yeah. when it comes to red cards. So what's wild here is, I, uh, Graham, you also lived through this uh, in the UK, the reaction to it and they show quite a lot of it in the documentary if you look um there's a there's a there's a cut of it but i I vividly remember this the sun newspaper put out a dartboard with david beckham's face in the middle and it was like cut this out and put it on your wall take out your frustrations on david beckham and they show the effigy and everything like that that that, that was uh hanging outside a pub it really was absolutely terrible for david beckham at that time every single stadium he went to for two seasons at least it was mm. horrendous treatment for him. And I think I have so much respect for the level of character he showed to carry on through that, frankly. Well, it was, it was the way the tabloid press, the, the way that they treated him, which really stood out for me. The late 90s was the absolute worst time of, of the British tabloids. And though they're not exactly squeaky clean now in 2023, but back then they were just completely rampant. Any, any hint of weakness, they would slaughter any public figure. You had the effigy hanging outside the 
outside the pub, which is is one thing. Obviously, the tabloids don't arrange that, but then they put it on the front page without much context at all, which to anyone walking past the petrol station or wherever you would see a, a, a newspaper just looks like they've put a hanging effigy of Beckham on the front page, which is essentially what they did. I don't think one of my big takeaways um, from this was I'd forgotten the extent to which Glenn Hoddle threw Beckham under the bus at France mm. 98, which I thought was shameful management, to be honest. As 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 Victoria says in the documentary, he's a 23-year-old man. I mean, at that point, you're kind of barely out of um, kind of childhood at that point. At 23, you're still a, a boy in a certain sense. For him to throw Beckham under the bus, particularly because Hoddle was a hero for Beckham, as well, and he says he wasn't focused on his football before the tournament, then he says he's to blame for, for losing to Argentina. Even if that is the case, as a manager in that situation, you protect your player and you contrast it with what um, Ferguson did after Beckham returns to Manchester United, where he says, you know, we'll, we'll protect you, don't worry about it, go and get a holiday. So yeah, I thought Hoddle didn't cover himself in glory in this documentary. No, absolutely not. Um, yeah, it was, it was quite... Um, it, it brought back memories also I don't know if you remember this, Taylor. She, she mentioned, uh, Posh Price mentioned the song that was sung about her at stadiums. Yeah. And I, I remember that happening. And, and it was like, I didn't, it was embarrassing. I was going to games with my dad and they were singing that song. I'm not going to yep. repeat what the lyrics or the content were, but that's also pretty horrendous. I did really happen. enjoy him very awkwardly, nervously dancing around what the song was. I mean, like, I'm not going to say it. And then it smash cuts to her just being like saying it out loud. I mean, like, can you believe that? That's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, two things there. One, I think one of my favorite things from this documentary was, to my mind, how good she comes across, how well she comes across. And everyone has seen that clip of like, my dad, we're working class. No, you're not. He drove you in a Rolls Royce. But I think it did a really good job of showing how much stuff was going on behind the scenes and when it was going on and the impact that had. Um, And we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but there's times when they are asked pointed questions when she is miserable for multiple different reasons. And he will sort of jump in and be like, yeah, we love it. We're so happy. And you can see her just kind of look at him. And I think there were moments when she was truly very unhappy. And I think she owns that in this documentary. But like in this episode is when we get the two posh to push uh, thing about her having a C-section, which which is ridiculous and would make me furious if I were him but I think it also does a really good job of showing just how much like it's the Ted Lasso thing of we don't know what these players are going through we don't know what's going on in their lives and that he finds out I think the night before the Argentina game right that she's pregnant so that after they're eliminated from the World Cup the first thing he does is flies to see her because his girlfriend or fiance He's pregnant with his kid. He wants to go see her. But then the way that's depicted in the media is like, oh, here he goes, jetting off to America to see his pop star girlfriend. It, it's the perception of him as this like guy who doesn't care, when in reality, like the thing I think he cares the most about off and on is his family. Uh, and so he's he's going to be with her because she's pregnant. And I think the same thing happens when she's giving birth, that there's a game and and he is maybe a little bit distracted and... It, again, it's seen as like she's she's this distraction. She's the problem, and I think it's just like no, that's that's marriage, that's life. And I really enjoyed how often they show that being a professional footballer, especially at that level with those demands, it has a massive impact on your personal life. Even if you are married to a very famous person who also is in the spotlight constantly, it still just has a huge <clears throat> impact that I think we still can't really understand. Yeah, agree with all of that. Uh, And I'll I'll get on to more of what you're talking about there, Taylor, in a second. But first, I want to go back to Graham talking about the tabloids. 
Uh, that was another revelation Insane. for me in this whole process. It's absurd, right? And, and how they treated Beckham, and I, I'm sure even though this obviously wasn't the focus of the documentary, so many other human beings around that time is is a joke, frankly, and it's it's disgusting. The Olsen being, countdown that, to being 18, for an example of like how messed oh, up yikes. the press could be. Like, yeah, so many so many things from that era I look back on and just think like that is insane that that was so normalized. And and like let's not kid ourselves, some of this still happens today, right? In in a number of different countries. So True. there's all of that. Um, not not to make too much light of it, but I took a screenshot of one of the headlines and I put it in our Google Doc. It's uh, the headline is just this. It just says one stupid boy referring to David Beckham. <laughs> Um, sometimes just Britishisms and British people and the way that some of those dialogues go are just so funny to me. Like this whole massive incident has just happened at the World Cup and the headline that your paper chooses to go with is just one stupid boy. Um, yeah. that, that one really got me in all this. Now to go back to Taylor, what you're talking about there about sort of just the whole gigantic swirl of all this and how, you know, the perceptions of what we see on the outside is not always, doesn't always reflect the reality the fact that all these things were such a big deal, right? The Beckham incident in 98 when he when he gets the red card for the, the kick out on mm-hmm. Simeone. Basically, everything he does in his personal life and him being afraid and having to sleep against the wall in, in the hospital room after mm-hmm. Victoria Beth- Beckham has given birth to their child because he's afraid of someone coming in and stealing their baby, right? Like, all of these things, it's mind-boggling and, and sad in so many ways. One of the things that it made me realize, though, from an American soccer perspective is just like how far away yeah. we are from ever having something like this. And maybe that's not a bad thing, to be honest, although we probably <laughs> see it in other sports. Brad like, Friedel's mad about it. He thinks more people should have their babies stolen from hospitals if so- soccer <laughs> wants to be taken seriously in this country. I'm really jealous that you thought of that and not me. That's a good bit, Taylor. <laughs> um, like, it, it's, it's crazy, right? Like, the, the difference in the soccer culture between England and the United States, there's so many obvious differences. And I was under no you know, false impression that they were neck and neck in terms of the relevance of the sports. But this really crystallized a lot of that for me about the celebrity and how intertwined that was. Yeah, Beckham's unique and his personal life decisions certainly played into his level of fame and his pop culture status. But we have that, like I said, maybe to a certain extent in in, in other sports here in the U.S. But soccer is just like it it basically feels like an eternity away from ever having a David Beckham figure that is produced by the United States. And, and related to that, Joe, I wonder if Beckham going out to the US after the France 98 World Cup where the Spice Girls are on tour, they're playing Madison Square Garden, and he kind of escapes the media storm in that moment. Um, I kind of wonder if that's where he gets his first sense of what life in the States would be like. And he, he likes that and he keeps that in his mind. He stores it away for when he eventually makes that move to MLS um, like 10 years later. You get, yeah, you get this, the sense that he's going there to escape, but then when he does eventually invent, end up in America, he is such a big celebrity that he probably doesn't end up escaping. Uh, so it doesn't have the same meaning for him. I thought that was really fascinating that, because I assume the same thing. It's like, oh, you're so frustrated by the paparazzi life in the UK and Spain that you're going to Los Angeles. But I thought it was interesting that Victoria sort of lays out that like LA is set up for that, that their school has an entrance that the paparazzi can't get to so she can pick up the kids and how... Like their their home has all these protections against paparazzi, and they're still taking pictures and being aggressive. Uh, but th- there was, uh, oh, and then her final point being that, like, if you're eating at a restaurant and Tom Cruise is there, who cares if some athlete is there? I think that's still probably downplaying a little bit. But I agree, Ryan. I thought it was going to be like, okay, so you moved to L.A. where all the paparazzi are. But I guess yeah. if you're in a place where they all are, there are protections in place. There are uh, ways of getting around that. There are ways of navigating it that I think are built in, and it's just more spread out as a result. 
Yeah. Some other key moments in this episode for me, uh, the accusation that the press tapped his home phone or his parents' home phone, which is absolutely wild and something that, you know, uh, has been a big deal in the UK with Piers yeah, Morgan. Yeah, around that time. Yeah, indeed. Um, Insane. That's so Alex ridiculous. Alex Ferguson, um, one of the, my favorite quotes is uh, he's talking about the press and he says, we get muddered. It's just nice to say it. Hear a Scottish person saying that word. I did enjoy that. Uh, Beckham's mum talking about putting a meal at the hotel on a Sun journalist tab rather than paying themselves. I was like, take that Sun journalist who earns 15 grand a year. The Beckhams have put a meal on your tab. There we go. That's for you. Um, and then um, should we, sh- sh- we talk about the wedding? Anyone want to talk about the wedding? Uh, Joe, you have thoughts on the fashion? I, I've got thoughts on So I do have thoughts on the fashion. Uh, it was atrocious. There we go. There's the end of that. Um, there were no hips involved in any dancing at any point. I'll tell you that much. That's what I saw in those videos. It, it was a lot of straight up dancing. <laughs> that's, that's true. This felt to me like some of the NBA weddings that we get nowadays where, you know, secretly or not so secretly, a lot of the NBA superstars are friends with each other. And, and there's like a, a fairly tight knit community, at least among certain ones of them. And you get some of them as the best man or, or groomsman. Do you guys know, because as far as I could tell, the only one I recognized immediately was Gary Neville, because they, they show him and they do the stand-up mm-hmm. of him talking about the wedding. Were there others from that Man United team that were in the wedding? Like, I, I yeah. this yeah, is obviously the first so. I'd ever seen Dwight, or cared about any of this. Dwight York smoking a cigar features in the reception. I, I nice. think he was one yep. of the groomsmen. I think Phil Neville was also one of the groomsmen. I, I, yeah, so I assume both Neville brothers were there. Actually, now that you've asked this, Joe, I think it's worth addressing really quickly. A person that, depending on when they filmed was either definitely in the documentary or definitely would have been in the documentary is Ryan Giggs. And there are very obvious reasons why he is not. Mm. Uh, I thought it was interesting that the only time I think they show him in the entire documentary is when he's failing to tackle Zinedine Zidane in one of the Champions League games. Besides that, he is not in it, but I'm guessing he was also in the wedding party and they cut around him uh, pretty consistently. Yeah, I, I noticed that Giggs wasn't in this documentary. As you say, Taylor, there are there are um, understandable reasons for that. Sven Goran Eriksson, any number, not really. in the, yeah, yeah. Sven Goran Eriksson doesn't have those sort of accusations against him. Not also not in the documentary, yeah. which I thought was quite interesting. And of course, Glenn Hoddle <laughs> not in there because well, he's mentioned like, when Fabio Capello can't remember who he is <laughs> and calls him <laughs> that Swedish guy. That was great. <laughs> yeah, I did also enjoy uh, at the wedding Gary Neville's uh, speech because I don't think we've ever oh. seen that footage before. He gives so a very good. good line, which we probably can't repeat here. Oh, about. we can definitely repeat it. Go ahead, okay. Ryan. Do you remember? So it? He says words to the effect of uh, Victoria requested that the Bayern Munich team were here because she wanted to see some men who can uh, stay on top for 90 minutes and still uh, come second. Yes. Uh, which is a, <laughs> an incredible. excellent line, which he definitely didn't write himself. I think he got a team of love, for that. Yeah. I love this delivery of it as well. Uh, yeah. uh, why is everyone's voice like at least two octaves higher? Like Beckham's voice is higher, yeah. Neville's voice is higher. It's a strange time. Yeah. Wonderful times indeed. That 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 bacchanalian wedding party does look good. Yeah, Dwight York with the cigar is quite quite a, quite a, a sight to see in that one. Also, of course, in this episode we have the lead up to the treble uh, and going yeah. to the Champions League final itself, which uh, Graham's put in the show notes. It was such an epic event. Like I, uh, I'm not a Man United fan. I would not wish them any success. But I remember that night thinking, yes, yeah. we want Man United to do this. It was important for the UK. I would say. So there were some cool behind the. Th- 
two of my favourite things from from the documentary were here. They flew Concorde to Barcelona. Yeah. That must have taken like thirty seconds. Here already, which is amazing. Oh, they overshot Barcelona. Ended up in Greece, and, and all they threw up the whole time. Oh yeah, he did not enjoy that. He did not enjoy flying Concorde. Uh, R.I.P. Concorde. But, uh, the, but also the Concorde thing, Ryan, is it just leads into sorry to butt in, but maybe it's just a generational thing. But British teams being in European finals definitely felt like a bigger deal at that time i think it's mm-hmm. because now you get a premier league team in a, in a european final every season right man city this year liverpool a couple of seasons ago but back then it wasn't so common so when manchester United are in this final they're chasing the treble they get everything thrown at them they get concords they get you know like an official escort to the airport they get well wishing from tony blair yeah. the prime minister it just feels like a, a, a kind of different time it did indeed. And one of my favorite things, Graham, was you saw them packing the flight cases to put on the Concorde and just a guy loading chewing gum, pack after pack of chewing gum. <laughs> yeah, of orbit. I didn't Morgan, know orbits yeah. existed at yeah. that point. That was a new one for me. Yeah, like, that's oh, what the same. That's for? Yeah. That's the same kit man who I love that he, <laughs> I didn't he put takes. That together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Fergie's gum. <laughs> that's just his supply. <laughs> they couldn't get any in Barcelona, of course. They had to import it in. <laughs> He, they show they show him chewing gum so many times in yep. his documentary, just loading it in there. The anger and throwing it out is. in anger as well. He does that quite a few times. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's part yeah. of his personality. Chewing oh gum. Oh my gosh! I love that the kit man took his the the, the iconic Manchester United badge um, for the suit that they were all given. Yeah. The, is it like a Versace suit or a Gucci yeah. suit or something like that? He's he takes the badge off it so he can wear it to weddings after the Champions League final. That it. suit must have must have been worth like thousands in yeah. memorabilia, and he takes the badge off it different times different times indeed did you all feel like on that note did you all feel like they set the stage particularly well for that for that game against Bayern yeah because I feel like they're they do a good job of laying out that like Bayern score Bayern are the dominant team basically until like the 85th minute but and and it's not about them but like they don't even mention that like Roy Keane Paul Scholes both suspended for that match so Manchester United win without their two most important midfielders and I think they want it to be about Beckham in that moment but the problem there is that he doesn't score he hits both of the corners fairly and he has an incredibly underrated moment when he like faints one way after the ball is cleared and then turns back inside and totally throws the defender plays it to Neville and that leads to the first corner but for I guess maybe just because I've watched that game and the highlights of that game hundreds if not thousands of times uh like i think i was that's such a huge moment in my mind uh it should always be scored by seager ross that's the video i would always watch was them uh was them doing that one so it it was interesting to me that they left out a lot but i think still basically covered it at the same time I think they're trying to make it like a personal story mm-hmm. about Beckham. Where if you put in the Keen stuff and the, the schools thing, it, it, it kind of becomes a football story rather than a personal That's story. Fair. That's fair. And and so they're trying to make it about Beckham. They're they're putting in that footage of him practicing crosses as a mm-hmm. kid. And there is one line in it where I mean, did David Beckham's dad really tell him as a kid that quote it's moments like corners at the end of a game that can create history? Sure. I have my doubts about whether he was telling his eight year old child that. That's great. Sure. That's somewhere near game eight hundred on the cassette. In, yeah. in the back yeah. it's, you'll find it you just gotta watch a few more games that based on what my understanding of david beckham's father is that feels like a thing that david beckham's father told him after the game that he definitely told him that all the time in his childhood and now it's become <laughs> immortalized as a thing that he said when maybe yeah. maybe that was just a little bit of self-promotion there the, the dad re- relationship taylor is interesting because he also very. comes across as very overbearing in this documentary yes. but it's all approved like this is all completely they're all completely happy for this it's, relationship to yeah. be laid out like this and i from from his from 
Beckham Senior's perspective, he's like, yes, I was harsh. But conversely, if I wasn't harsh, you all wouldn't have David Beckham. It's yeah. kind of his vibe, isn't it? It really is. And I think two things there. The first, I think it's really interesting that the introduction to the dad is him doing a talking head in the very beginning. And then it cuts to David Beckham, like sort of, I think, like getting to the room where they're going to film. And he says, like, oh, you talked to my dad? Yeah. Did he behave himself? Like, that's that's the it sets the stage of like, OK, so there's something going on there that maybe I assumed it was going to be like the Jamie Tart alcohol thing with his father. But it just seems like he was just kind of overbearing. But it did, Ryan, it it. I guess like watching that as a parent, it was a moment of like, yeah, if you want your kid to be a global superstar who is incredibly good, you make them practice over and over and over again. Deion Sanders uh, has like all those quotes about ranking his children (laughs) based on their performances and which one is his favorite. (laughs) And like that is certainly a way to approach parenting and it leads to being the dad of David Beckham. But I definitely came away from this one thinking that I am very okay with my daughter not being David Beckham if it means that we're not standing outside at like nine o'clock at night with me making her do another free kick because that's what's going to make the difference when you're playing Sweden and we need a goal in the quarterfinals. Does indeed. We made a difference against Greece, apparently, Taylor. Why don't we take a break and we'll get to that and many more moments to come in the Beckham documentary back shortly. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We are talking Beckham documentary. Uh, episode three, we get sort of the, the tensions as he starts to make his departure from Manchester United. We get the aforementioned uh, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer's famous boot. He's just delighted that it was kicked in Beckham's face. Uh, we get the goal against Greece that qualifies um, that qualifies the nation for the World Cup. A lot happening in this episode. We get Carlos Kiris kind of becoming the latest heel as well in the episode, mm-hmm. which is interesting too. Um, but to start off, Joe, there was something that I think we all kind of were surprised by. The reaction to the shaved head. It, <laughs> David Beckham, he has his lovely locks of hair, which one day he decides to shave uh, completely off. Now, my memories of the time were that it was controversial for two reasons. One, he had lovely hair. And two, every child on the playground wanted to copy well, it. And no parent right. wanted their child to have a shaved head, basically. Related, well, related to one, Ryan. Sorry to jump in. Uh, no, it's Related right. to one. He was sponsored by Brill Cream. Yeah. Like, that wouldn't have gone down well at Brill Cream headquarters. He's not got any hair anymore. What does he gel? (laughs) Thank you for running that through the Scottish or British to English Mm. translation, Ryan. Um, I did not know what Brill Cream was. Uh, Yeah, so I I honestly still don't understand this. It sounded like Sir Alex Ferguson was really, like, irritated about this and 47,000 other things about David Beckham and life in general. Mm -hmm. Um, Taylor, I think you said it earlier. I definitely perceive Alex Ferguson a bit differently um, after watching this. But I also think I also think deep down we probably knew that there was a lot of this controlling side to Alex Ferguson also, yeah. because I don't know how you can have the impact that he had mm-hmm. on a team like Manchester United for the time that he did at the level that he did without having some of those traits. It's, it's exactly like the Beckham senior to, to David Beckham relationship in some ways, right? It's you don't get a lot of the ways. David Beckham yeah. that we know without this sort of overbearing upbringing that i would echo what you said taylor that's not uh, an upbringing that i would like my children to have one day like that's that's not at all something that i'm interested in but there is a benefit to some of these things and the choices that were made along the way so yeah anyway alex ferguson was was irritated about this is it like bad to have a shaved head i had a shaved head as like a 12 year old like i don't i don't understand what the big deal was (laughs) wait before i remember before you all answer because i just want to like joe i thought the exact same thing and i was confused because the narrative up to that moment is 
He's overly obsessed with his image. He's obsessed with his hair. It's a new right. style. And now it's gone. It done. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I would have seen that as like, oh, he. It's like I'm. I'm. There are no distractions, boss. I am here to play. And instead, it, Joe, you're. It was like as though he got like. I don't want to go like like a swastika, but it was like as though he got something like horrifically offensive tattooed on him. What seemed to be the response of like, no children wanted that. Oh, he put a target on his back. The boss was after him from that moment on. Is it just that it like made him look like a skinhead? I can't imagine that it was the Brill Cream sponsorship was why everyone was mad. No, no I don't think Fergie's uh, too upset about that. I think his his anger comes from him knowing that Beckham's going to be on the front page of all the papers the following day. He's going to get asked about... Um, why he shaved his head, does it mean anything, what does it signify? I, I also, keep in mind, this is, so this is, two th- Ryan, when was this, 2000, 2001, when Beckham yeah. shaves his head? Yeah. Um, that is, I'm in school at that time, and all the kids wanted to shave their head, and I cannot yeah. stress, I, I don't know if that sort of thing exists anymore with, with, with kids where a celebrity does something or an athlete does something and all the kids want to do it. With Beckham, I had Predators. I had David Beckham Adidas um, kind of clothes, apparel. I, I did the, the Mohawk thing that he had after the 2002 World Cup. I, I didn't shave my head, but a number of my friends did. And I think Fergie is just anticipating that attention. And also it's about conformity, right? It yeah. goes back to right at the start of the documentary when they're talking about how you're not allowed white boots. Everyone has to have black boots. And obviously that all seems a little bit stupid, but that does lead to the culture that Ferguson was able to create within that dressing room. I also, like, when we talk about culture there for a moment, I'm I'm wondering, and I might be wrong, if, like, a shaved head is more of a thing nowadays or has become more of a common thing. It's less of a big deal. But I think about in that time period, the late 90s, early 2000s, and, like, the three people that most come to mind for having a shaved head were like Renton and Train Spotting, like Tyler Durden and Fight Club, and Edward Norton in American History X. And none of those are particularly like happy role models or happy images to go with. And so I, I guess, Joe, where I kind of landed was that it was a an aggressive, like transgressive sort of thing to do. I mean, he is the postmodern footballer, after all, as as the Real Madrid president uh, put it. Uh, so I, I, that was my assumption, was that it just it made him look like fully a rebel bad boy and then all the the young children copying it was maybe not the look their parents wanted yeah i think that's a pretty good reading uh we also get in this when the moment he's made england captain which he calls his greatest achievement which feels a slight slight to uh whatever he's done for manchester united up to that point yeah. as well but the incredible arc we have here from france 98 to what is this a few years later he's gone from in basically two years from being the most hated person in the country to captaining the soccer team yeah which and is that, unreal. And the the goal, I've always loved that Greece goal. Uh, I, mm. I always thought it was like such a special moment and such a Michael Jordan, like shoot or shoot sort of thing. But also I, I really enjoyed in the documentary. Again, I liked it. And I think he comes across, I think you understand why he is who he is, why so many people gravitate towards him, why he's been so successful. And in that moment, he has that quote where he's like almost crying uh, in talking about that goal. And he says, I just wanted to make everyone happy. And I feel like that's genuine. I feel like that is absolutely how he felt is the whole country hates me. I let everybody down. All the papers are writing mean things about me. They're attacking my family. I just want people to like me. I just want people to like me in an England jersey. And being the captain and scoring that goal, I I feel like that was a massive moment for him personally, professionally. And I think that comes across. And again, it made me really enjoy this documentary and him. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, that Greece, that Greece game, Taylor, 
really incredible moment. I think lots of English people remember like where they were when it happened. I was at school at the time. I was watching it with my school friends. I remember thinking how terrible the game was because it was up to that point a dreadful performance and we scraped into a World Cup with a last-minute free kick for a draw, which is kind of an underwhelming way to go through. But yeah, a very clutch moment. We're all sitting there, all my buddies with our shaved heads and our tattoos, <laughs> really enjoying that moment. Um, yeah, <laughs> your shaved, shaved heads and bro cream canisters, I assume. <laughs> That's right. But yeah, we didn't know what to do with them, but yeah. Qualifying for World Cups for England at that time wasn't a given either it was mm. it was more i mean look they were they were expected to do it but they miss out in 1994 and this documentary they even include the result in italy that gets england to the 1998 world cup One so in Rome. It, yeah yeah it is it is a it is a time when that is still a notable achievement for for england yeah uh twee isn't it wonderful anyway <laughs> uh for this this episode we also get of course the boot incident we've talked about and the transfer to real madrid we get that moment graham where we see, uh, or allegedly see Zinedine Zidane say, like, you're good, come to Madrid, now, do it. Yeah, I I also thought it was interesting, or it was nostalgic seeing Zidane putting on the Manchester United shirt that he swapped with Beckham at the end of the game. You don't see that anymore. You don't see that anymore. Star players putting on the shirts they've swapped for at the end of matches. Because they're drenched in sweat, man. I get that. (laughs) I don't want to put on someone's cold, sweaty shirt, but I love that Zidane went that way, man. That was his style. That used to happen, though. Players used to do that like quite regularly. You'd see them in a weird shirt of an opposition team. That doesn't happen, though. Zidane, I didn't know quite how cat that man was but every time they cut to him in this documentary he's making like like little faces he's making a lot of expressions in this one he doesn't seem to do a lot of talking but does a lot of like Ugh. Uh, well, the, i yeah, really the, liked him the impression you get of zidane is that he doesn't he just doesn't speak he's yeah. not in this documentary figo is he's he's one of the interviews but but um but zidane isn't and it makes me wonder how did that man win like four champions league titles as a manager did just have someone else who did Rep- the talking for reputation him? and fear Graham, yeah. am i off no no, to no, say- no no sorry the answer is having real madrid that's yeah, the answer yeah, sorry that's true you can continue i will also say um, I've, I've been in his presence once uh, I went to an Adidas I think I might have told this story in a podcast before but I interviewed him uh, in London before a Champions League final before the 2013 Champions League final in fact he was doing an Adidas thing he was wearing a suit and it was this thing where they had a new a chip in the ball where you could show where it was going and then the technology in the ball and they said Zidane hit a ball uh, into the top corner of this goal we have and he did it in dress shoes first mm-hmm. time just knocked it straight into the top corner and shrugged then he did some interviews i remember it well i was, I was standing next to grant wall he did an interview with him as well so he um i asked a question in english and it's just his eyes when he looks at you he's yeah. actually stealing your soul it's te- he's terrifying so I, I would do anything he said basically he, he was my coach and also he only replied in french he understands english but he won't speak it and that is a boss move ryan uh the the i was trying to figure out like whose energy is similar and where i landed was uh ivan drago from rocky four the like i must break you boxer who Mm -hmm. doesn't speak but when he does it just conveys fear and terror that is (laughs) the energy that i feel like we were getting from zidane in this documentary and honestly it just made me like him all the more as did your anecdote so there we go Uh, another positive takeaway from this documentary even even his hair is a boss move right where he is (laughs) he is a bald man refusing to accept or maybe he has just accepted that he is is a bald man yeah Yeah. exactly he's gone if if you ask for that you're going to barbers and ask for the monk right that's essentially what that what that is but the fact that he just doesn't care like he's a global icon around the world he's one of the best players in the world and he's like "Ah, i don't like contrast that with beckham who's having all these different haircuts the dan's like i don't care about that yeah yeah and joe as good as real madrid are say in 2023 
for me, this is just a stark reminder of how amazing their star power was back then. Those players, did they, did they resonate with you like they would for an oldie like me? Maybe not quite the same, but but yeah, like the the idea of the Galacticos. I like the uh, the shot of Perez, and you could see the big buildings out the window, and he's like, "Yeah, these are these are the Galacticos. Like that one's Figo, that one's Zidane, and Beckham. Like this one's gonna be yours." Did like, he have that, those buildings just, built for each sighting? It's just, just ridiculous, like, no, like complete opulence. But he definitely said that to every single sighting, right? Oh, he one, definitely one thousand percent, one thousand percent. Like Perez comes off exactly like I thought he would. Yes. He, at, at some point, he's like. You know, no disrespect to Manchester United, disrespect to Manchester United yeah. intended. That's my editorializing yeah. there. And he goes, David Beckham was born to play at Real Madrid. He's just exactly who you think Oof. he's going to be. And I kind of respect that he comes on and just doesn't deviate from character yeah. whatsoever. I think a lot of it is backed up by the way this documentary ends it is like he he resigns as uh, Real Madrid president and that's it. That's over for him as though he isn't still Real Madrid president, which is why yeah. they interview him in front of all of those cups. All of cups. We'll say, and this is me showing my bias fully, another thing I really, really enjoyed about this documentary is the way they depicted Real Madrid as a club, but then with the players. And I think when they make it really clear that Beckham is brought in because he is famous and will sell jerseys and plays the exact same position as Luis Figo, and there is going to be a problem there, but who cares because we can triple our revenue and do foreign tours – it shows that these players are commodities, and I think they're commodities to every club these days, but especially at that time period, it has never made sense to me why you would want to play for a club. Everyone says it's Real Madrid, they're next level, and they are. They've won so many, many, many things, but you are definitely treated like a commodity. Never has that been more clear than when they then appoint as manager the person that he like kind of left Manchester to madness. get away from. Absolute madness. And, and so... It shows to me how dysfunctional a club like Real Madrid can be because of that reputation and the power they have. At the same time, the best way I can explain it is his teammates have a sort of like we all die someday mentality. And I think there is where I came away from, and maybe this is slightly silly, is that it seems to be when you play for Real Madrid, there's an awareness. And maybe this is Barcelona too these days. There's an awareness of it's going to end and it's going to end poorly and I'm going to be scapegoated and people are going to blame me and someone will be brought in to replace me and I will be unceremoniously shown the door. But until then, I make a lot of money. I play for the the biggest club in the world. We're having a good time. Don't worry if we concede. We're going to score goals. I thought that insight was fascinating. And it did sort of, I think, show how the overwhelming pressure of Real Madrid can be overwhelming unless you sort of have a like almost fatalist mindset of like, it's going to end sometime. So in the meantime, we may as well enjoy it. It seems like that's how you survive is you become a part of the team and you play as a team. You make yeah. friends with the players. You all know it's going to be tough and you sort of pick each other up. And I thought they did a great job of showing how important the positivity of a team, how important that can be in sustaining really stressful, difficult situations. They they showed the human side of the of the Galacticos, yeah. the original Galacticos team, which I I hadn't I hadn't really considered that before. The way that they talk about Beckham and Roberto Carlos being in each other's company for yeah. two hours and not being able to speak mm-hmm. to each other because Roberto Carlos doesn't speak English and Beckham doesn't speak Spanish or Portuguese, and Michel Salgado was clearly part of that that little group with Carlos and 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 Beckham. So I enjoyed that part of the documentary. I also enjoyed thinking about how. Beckham going to Barcelona, which in this documentary you get a little clip of Juan Laporta 
saying that Barcelona have agreed a, a deal with Manchester United for his mm-hmm. for his transfer. That changes so much in football, not just with Beckham and Manchester United. So if that happen, happens, Beckham goes to Barcelona, Ronaldinho doesn't go to Barcelona at that point. Manchester United sign Ronaldinho, because yep. that was where he was going before Barcelona. Cristiano Ronaldo probably doesn't end up at Manchester United. He probably goes to Arsenal, who had agreed a deal with Sporting Lisbon before Manchester United came in. So then you have questions like, does the Rijkaard era happen at Barcelona? Does that then lead to Pep Guardiola at Barcelona? Does Wenger's mm-hmm. de- decline at Arsenal happen with Cristiano Ronaldo in that team? Football is obviously full of sliding door moments, but that is a that is a pretty big one where the course of the biggest clubs in Europe could have been changed by that moment. That That is definitely so, Graham. But I, I also took that with a pinch of salt. I remember speaking to a Spanish fan many years ago who said, like, Joan Laporta back in that era yeah. would just say, uh, we're gonna. Um, I need to get elected. We're gonna. We're gonna sign Beckham. Uh, election, please. That was. That yeah, was basically well, the thing. Uh, thank goodness he's grown out of that habit. Of course, Juan Laporta <laughs> doesn't do anything like that anymore. You're right, though, Ryan. That was very much part of the election cycle for Barcelona and Real Madrid. They would promise candidates would promise to sign a a player when they were elected. But actually, I think that clip is from from when Juan Laporta has actually been elected. I think he's Barcelona president in that clip, and they'd agreed a transfer. Of course, the player then has to agree to the contract and that's where Beckham ends up going to Real Madrid. Yeah, there we go. All right, episode four, uh, the final episode of the documentary, we have uh, the stuff with going to Galaxy, his, his retirement, his uh, into Miami stuff. Also, the one of the biggest stories around David Beckham, the alleged affair that he had uh, as well. Fire truck of lawyers on standby for this conversation, I suppose. But Graham, any, any I'm going to throw you under the bus here. Any thoughts on this? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Um, personally, I don't think we learned a great deal. I think when we were speaking about this before the, the we started recording, um, my thoughts were maybe a little bit different to to, to the three of yours. I, I thought it had kind of all been um, as as good as confirmed that there was an affair, and they they talk they talk around the subject. They talk about how it was a painful time, and Beckham talks about David Beckham that is talks about how he made mistakes and how he was lonely in Madrid. So they're kind of pointing you in the direction of a confirmation that that, that an affair did happen. But yeah, it's, part, it's a big part of the, the Beckham story, of course, and I, I guess they had to address it in, in some way, even if they don't really end up doing that properly. Yeah, indeed. Um, and I mean, listen, you can look back at whether denials were issued at the time and you won't find them that's all i'll say at this juncture but yeah a very big part of the beckham story that was of course as was taylor moving to la galaxy the french mm-hmm. team <laughs> which i would say up front <laughs> that whole section made me miss grant wall uh so much uh grant wall the for people who don't know the american yeah. soccer he would have been this. passed away he absolutely would have passed away in the 2000 in the middle of the 2022 world cup but the book that they reference when donovan speaks publicly negatively about David Beckham is the Beckham experiment in the Grant Wall book. He definitely would have been in this one. Uh, and and so much of that, those early days of Beckham in Major League Soccer are framed by that book, are shaped by that book. And they don't really get into some of that in this documentary. It's much more Donovan like speaks ill of Beckham because of a perceived lack of effort and a lack of focus because he's playing on loan at a different club. But I think there were other much more justified reasons. Beckham comes severely injured and cannot function at anything close to 100%. I think by some accounts it was 50%. By some accounts he couldn't really play that much at all. And so I I thought that was a really interesting segment because I remember reading that book and being like, I cannot believe that Landon Donovan said this was okay and let this be on record because he very – he is – 
pretty direct in a lot of his appraisals and a lot of his frustrations with David Beckham. So I thought that they were able to kind of deal with that to some extent, put it aside and win titles. Uh, I thought it was another really important point in the narrative because basically along the way, every single time there's a setback, there is a then success. That seems to be an important part of the David Beckham narrative, such as it is. Uh, and, And so him going to the Galaxy was really interesting in that way. And then also, I'm sure Joe will have some thoughts on this one. Just a reminder of how far we have come with Major League Soccer in uh, 20 years or so. Yeah, I'm looking forward to finishing this and watching this last episode. I know bits and pieces of, of what things were like at that time. If David Beckham was coming today, I think things would have been a little bit different in terms of some of the immediate notes about how he was received and, and the mechanics and logistics there. Um, things have changed quite a lot, even... David Beckham changing the structure of the league and the roster rules and all of those things that David Beckham and the Galaxy and Major League Soccer had to work out. It is it is now, I feel like, a perfect moment with Leo Messi and Major League Soccer to look back at Beckham and sort of the changes that were inspired because of his presence. Yeah, I'm looking forward to episode four. Yeah, there were so many moments with, with, with the LA Galaxy part of the documentary where I thought, wow, MLS was really bad yep. back then. That even, even things like how amazingly crap the setup was for the, for the announcement, not for his unveiling. They have him out on the pitch and there's kind of ticker tape and everything. I think we all remember those pictures, but for when he's actually announced as an, an LA, he signed a contract with the LA Galaxy. There's this crappy Skype line that keeps on dropping and it looks like it's in a conference room of a day's in or something something like that yeah it is a it is a pretty poor setup for for the announcement of of a player like david beckham on the flip side speaking of announcements we do get multiple uh shots of goals being scored and things happening against the galaxy all of which are narrated uh indirectly by max bretos who's doing the goal call and doing a lot of the commentary for that one so i enjoyed max's strange unofficial cameo in there shouts to max shouts indeed all right so taylor i think as a four-piece Mm-hmm. Uh, documentary. This was a lot of fun. You think you've mentioned a few times how much you enjoyed it. I felt the same way too. I thought uh, I, I've always thought Beckham's a very likable character. Agreed. Uh, and I think that is enhanced by this. But also, I'm aware I'm supposed to think that because mm-hmm. that's the direction I've been pointed in here. It's tough, right? Because I mean, he is a brand. He talks about that. He talks about knowing that there's a life after football. Uh, I think you can see that with Inter Miami and everything that that he has done there. Um, at the same time, I do think he is fundamentally a similar, if not the same person to who he was when he first broke through at Manchester United. I think that when he goes back to Madrid after signing for the Galaxy because it's midseason and then basically just keeps showing up to training and training by himself and eventually works his way back into the team and becomes integral in them winning the league that year such that they try to keep him like it shows why again why his teammates I think liked him why coaches liked him I think he brings that sincerity to most things I've had a very limited number of interactions either with him or like as he was talking and I find the same thing I don't think you get a lot of like PR speak, you definitely get a lot of bad branding. Like when one of the advertisements was, I like cars. Like you, he's not oh, yeah, great at it, uh, but, so but I think he is pretty sincere. And I also then like uh, to, to my final kind of thought on this one, Joe, I know you haven't gotten to this one yet. Oh, Ryan, maybe you haven't finished this one either, but I love that it sort of ends or one of the last points of it, it doesn't end with this, but one of the last points is him talking about like, yeah. So I went to Milan on loan 
Uh, and you know, like, and like that obviously annoys the family. They had all just settled in Los Angeles. And then he says, but I always wanted to come back. I always, I always knew I was coming back. And then there's a half a beat pause. And then Fisher Stevens from behind the camera says, well, except when you tried to stay. And then they cut to the whole thing where Beckham kind of tried to get out of his LA galaxy deal pretty quickly and wanted to stay with Milan and make that move official. And even that, like I, I found to be strangely compelling because it was clearly not the narrative they were going for. Of like, no, I was always coming back to my family. I was always pulled back to them. And I do think this documentary shows his family is important and maybe is the most important thing now, but it was definitely not the most important thing for big chunks of his career. And again, that goes back to if you want to be the best footballer in the world, maybe your family can't come first. That's a thing Ferguson drove home. That's a thing his dad, I think, drove home. And so I think that's still part of who he is in his DNA. Uh, And now we see him with Inter-Miami bringing in Messi and how much that seems to bring him joy. So I think it's an interesting duality that exists throughout the documentary. For all that Beckham is quite clearly a, a celebrity and he has that status and that standing and all the flash cars and watches and everything, there is a there's a telling moment where it, it seems to be about 2000, 2001. He's asked, is, is football the only thing that matters to him? Before they can even finish the question, he says something like, yes, of mm-hmm. course. And, and I actually believe him. I think football is has been his obsession. And in retirement, he's had to find other things like the beekeeping and into Miami and he owns a whiskey company. Yeah. Certain things like that to fill that void in his life. Cause I, I think that was his obsession. And just quickly talking about the documentary itself. Um, I think this is the closest soccer's had to the last dance, which has obviously been the gold standard for sports documentaries the last two or three years because the last dance wasn't so watchable because Jordan was the best. And obviously Beckham was never the best in the world, so there's a, there's a difference there. But The Last Dance was so good because it was reflective of a time and of pop culture at a certain time. And Jordan is at the centre of a universe that links all these different stories and people together. And Beckham has all that. So you don't just get a story about a player. You get stories about the class of 92 and the Spice Girls and Britain in the 90s and Alex Ferguson and the Galacticos and MLS, you get all these different stories linked together using Beckham as the fulcrum in the middle of it. And instead of the flu game, you have the boot kicking incident with Fergie and you have the sarong and the Pepsi advert and all these things have genuine cut through for people of a certain age, people my age. Lucy, my wife, she watched the first episode with me. Um, and she never watches anything football related. She's the kind of person when the World Cup final was at 3-3 in Qatar, I had to go downstairs and tell her maybe you should turn on the TV. There's a really good football match happening. She she willingly sat down and watched the first episode of, of, of this with me. So, yeah, I think this documentary, much like The Last Dance, I'm not saying Beckham is Jordan. I'm saying in terms of the documentary, it transcends um, soccer in the same way that The Last Dance trans- transcends. It was more than a story about basketball, The Last Dance. Yeah, I agree with that. And my wife is exactly the same. She sat down and watched it with me too. And no, and she um <laughs> she enjoyed uh, <laughs> she came from a fa- she comes from a family of Manchester United fans, enjoyed uh noting all the nineties like bench jackets and shirts that her brother and father all owned and they probably looked incredibly baggy and cool on them as well. Nineties fashion, great joke. Baggy uh, is back, well. baby. Baggy is back. Yes, it is indeed. Actually the the, the, the what the, our key learnings here, Joe, Beckham good, Hoddle bad. 90s fashion bad, Simeone the absolute worst. Is that fair? Did we get the structure there? (laughs) I'm at least there on half of those things. And to be honest, that feels like a pretty good hit rate. So let's go with it. (laughs) It is indeed. All right. I think we've just about wrapped up our thoughts on the Beckham documentary. Listener, if you've seen it with your eyes, let us know what you think. And if you have seen it, have you looked directly into the 
lens like they do on this oh, documentary. I, that. I like I that. I want, I want to know, Graham, how they, how they filmed it. They're looking directly at the lens and they've got obviously a, a big light around them as well. How are they yeah. also viewing the footage at that point? Or whether that's a construct or not, I'm not sure. But it, I, just, I like it. It was when they were smiling. I don't do FaceTime because it's just too intense for me. And this was like I was FaceTiming David Beckham and Eric Cantona <laughs> over and over again. It made me feel so awkward. Stop looking at me. <laughs> All right, on that note, let's uh, let's park this one. Graham Rutherford, thank you very much for watching this and talking about it. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Uh, Joe Lowry, a Guinness and a raw egg for you. Thank you very much. Oh, delightful. My two favorite things. <laughs> Indeed. And Taylor Rockwell wasn't a red card. Thank you very much. Definitely a red card. Malicious intent. Diego Simeone, the best. Uh, listener, thank you for joining us on this one. Let us know your thoughts. We'll be back on the feed very shortly, but for now, bye! Bye!